Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. It's great to be back after our long summer break. We're now fully into autumn with all its mists and mellow fruitfulness and all looking forward to what will be a significant few months for the state of the planet and the health of our natural world. As we record today, the UN Biodiversity Conference is happening at a crucial moment for biodiversity and habitats in the UK as we're lagging behind the rest of the world and are now one of the most nature depleted countries. And next month in Glasgow, we play host to the much delayed COP26, the International Climate Conference, on which so much depends if we are to achieve our target of net zero by 2050 and keep global heating at 1.5 degrees or less. At Planet Pod, we're focusing on how all the international issues affect us here in the UK. Climate change on our doorstep, if you like, from weather to water, from food scarcity to flooding. And I'm delighted to kick off our series this autumn with our guests today who are here to help me unpick the global and make it local. Professor Lizzie Kendon is a science fellow at the Met Office Hadley Centre and professor in Faculty of Science at Bristol University. Lizzie leads a team of scientists who use very high resolution, kilometre scale, models to study climate change with a focus on gaining a better understanding of climate extremes and their future change. Hello, Lizzie, and welcome to Planet Pod, and thanks for joining us. Hello. Sounds absolutely fascinating. I am going to ask you about that because I love this idea of, of high resolution modelling and I know nothing about it. So, so we'll come on to that. But let me welcome our second guest, Dr. Chris White, who's the head of Centre for Water, Environment, Sustainability and Public Health at the University of Strathclyde. He also leads Engineering for Extremes, which is not uh, um, an outdoor activity group. It's a research group that focuses on understanding extreme weather events and hydrometeorological hazards such as floods and droughts. Chris, hello and welcome to Planet Pod. Hello, Amanda. Um, thanks so much for having me on. I love this engineering for extremes. Is it a bit, I mean, it is a bit like kind of, is, is it sort of like going down mountains on ironing boards? Because I know you're an outdoor, <laughs> an outdoor cycling junkie as well. Um, so we need to talk about it. <laughs> I, I wish it was, and maybe <laughs> maybe I could include some of that in in my research meetings. Um, that's a good idea. No, it, it's more around, I guess, finding practical solutions, um, not exclusively actually engineering, but practical solutions to um, high impact weather events and natural hazards. And so it, it adds a, a focus because it places a lot of the work that perhaps we as engineers do, um, but very much in the in the present and looking actually to the future when uh, we're looking at future changes. So it, it relates weather and climate to to um, our practical engineering uh, solutions yeah and that and that's really important isn't it because i think if we think about climate change for most of us perhaps the most visible or tangible impact of climate change here in the uk is probably the weather and 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 people i think people are beginning to realize that our extreme weather events and things are much more common than we had perhaps expected and they are having much more of an impact on our daily lives but before we kind of get into that, maybe we should just wind back and start talking a little bit about this, this report, the IPCC report, which came out in the summer and I think was probably the most hard-hitting report we've had so far from that group. So can you just share with our listeners a little bit about what the IPCC is and what the report is and why it was so important? Yeah, so the, the IPCC is the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change. It's an organisation is sort of born out of the United Nations and the World Meteorological uh, Organisation. It's to um, 
pool together the latest science in, in the climate change space. So uh, the output from scientists like myself, like Lizzie, and like many, many others around the world, we all produce, we, we do projects, we produce papers, we, we do science. The IPCC then takes that information, understands it, synthesizes it, breaks it down into what do we collectively know, what, what is known about the climate and the changing climate around us, and make sense of it, and then produces a set of reports every five, six, seven years. It's been about seven years since the last one, and tries to present that information in a way that both gives uh, us, and I say us as in everyone, a better understanding of how our climate has changed, the reasons for that, and then, of course, gives uh, clear indications of, of what we need to do, uh, as globally, that is, uh, to address and to mitigate the um, climate change. So it has various focus, various flavors to, to that. There's the resilience side, which I guess we'll probably touch on in a minute. Um, there's the mitigation side, but also there's just that, that collation, that, that summary of existing information. No one, no one person is able to get that, that level of information themselves. So the, these are critical, critical reports that they're a real marker um, for both the science community, but also just, just globally for global governments. It's a hugely important collaborative piece of research and, as you say, bringing together of the best. Why was this one so important? Because I know they're all important, but this one particularly set off alarm bells, didn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and I think in, in part it's because of uh, almost the increasing confidence of which some of the statements are able to be made in the IPCC report. So the, the, these reports started in... 1990 or thereabouts and say there have been six and and just to clarify we've only had the first that there are several reports each time so there this is the sixth assessment report there are several reports that will make up that sixth assessment um we've had the first one which is working group one that's the physical science basis so that's um i i can't speak for lizzie but that's i guess primarily that's the sort of space that we probably both work um work within so this is really the science around climate and climate change now, when those when the IPCC started in 1990, yes, there was a, a growing awareness of what climate change, or rather, what we as in people are are doing to our climate and and how our climate was changing. But while there was, of course, science out there, there wasn't a huge depth of science and a lot of questions, a lot of unknowns about what what we we're really doing, what was likely to happen in the future, the models themselves, the global climate models that we all all, all use um, were somewhat, let's say, in their infancy. They were they, they were in early iterations compared to where they are now. And so the so what we've seen then over over the, the various sequences of the IPCC reports, going from the first assessment report right up to this one, the, the sixth assessment, um, is not only is does this body now have an increasing amount of science on which to pull information from? It also is able to look at more detailed models, more de detailed science and, uh, and model output. And so it's increasingly able to say with a lot more surety as to A, what we've done to our climate and B, what we are going to do increasingly to our climate in the future. And, and, and so the, I think the reason to answer your, come back to your, your question, the reason why this one was so important is it really hammers home. It, it, it pulls no punches when it comes to, look, we are, we have made ma major changes. We are seeing those changes already and we're going to experience more of these. And to be able to make the, those 
those statements with that kind of language you know, it was inconceivable you couldn't make those sort of statements back in in the 1990s now now we are because we're 30 years or, or so on that's really interesting so that's building on that body of knowledge lizzie yeah so i mean absolutely i i very much support what chris has been saying there i think um you know, it's important for people to realise these reports are um, involve thousands of scientists internationally. So we're talking about people from every single continent coming together and coming up with a consensus view on climate change, which I think really is one of the defining issues of our time. And I think this report is particularly important because of the language that is coming out, as Chris has alluded to. So, you know, we, it talks about it being unequivocal that human influence has warmed the planet. I mean, that's the strongest language that we've had yet. Um, and this idea of bringing together multiple lines of evidence. So we're not just talking about climate models and what they show. We're talking, you know, bringing together observational evidence. We're bringing together paleoclimate evidence. So what I mean by that is ice cores and, you know, information from other sources. All these different lines of evidence are coming together in this report um, and really giving a really authoritative view of climate change, which then can help um, um, for policymakers and, and make people to understand what the latest science is. And I, I think it's really important. So there's three three reports that are coming out. The first one is, is this physical science basis. The second one is about impacts. Um, um, in fact, I'm a co-author on that on one of the chapters on that, where we've been looking at kind of the vulnerability of human system and the natural world to climate change. Um, and I think... Um, you know, that's a really important report that will be coming out too. And obviously then there's the third report on mitigation, i.e. What, what do we actually need to do to stop the problem getting worse? There's a series of reports coming out. The first one, which is the physical science basis, which is which is the one which really sets the scene and, and really provides the strong view of, of how the, you know, the climate science is coming together and, and, the, and the, you know, the sort of um, conclusions we can draw. Um, so there's a number of things that have come out. The language, I think, is a lot stronger. So this talk about unequivocal um, human influence on the planet. There's now evidence of human influence across lots of different variables. So not just mean climate, but extremes. And maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit more um, later. But I think that's really important. So there's now human influence on extremes, which is, as you rightly say, one of the key manifestations of climate change and how people will feel that locally. There's, new, there's more confidence in how, how the climate's going to respond to a given forcing. So we talk about climate sensitivity, which is quite a complicated term, but really re relates to how much we expect the climate to warm for a given, given um, carbon dioxide emissions. And, and there's more confidence now. So the range of climate sensitivity is really pulling down um, tighter. So we have, you know, we can say more confidence how the climate's going to evolve um, and there's a number of other things. There was a lot of um, talk about the net zero emissions, which is a key concept for what does that really mean? And, and I think there's this commitment to there no longer being any warming in the pipeline once we really go to net net, net zero emissions. And that's, I think, a very important concept. So, so just to unpick that, thank you, Lizzie, because there's an, a lot in what you've just said. And, and can I just go back a little bit? And when you talk about... Um, kind of the vulnerabilities you're talking about the the work that you've done your particular chapter for for the, for the second report or the second assessment what sorts of things are we talking about there what what kind of um issues are you raising or are you seeing in the work that you do so in particular um fl flooding so fluvial flooding um pluvial flooding so there's two types of flooding so there's the kind of surface water flooding when we get really intense downpours and that's um a certain 
particularly cities are quite vulnerable to that because there has a lot of um, obviously surfaces that don't um, permeate the water. And um, so you can often get um, flash flooding and also in small catchments are quite vulnerable. Um, then there's also fluvial flooding, which is river flooding, which is kind of more longstanding um, um, prolonged rainfall that can lead to rivers um, overtopping their banks and, and low-lying areas being flooded. Um, and that, so that's something we were looking at, specifically the pluvial flooding, so the flash flooding side in cities, and how the latest information we have from the climate models is really providing, giving us evidence of how those sort of events might change, and therefore how at risk people are. So it's taking into account, you know, that this that is the hazard. So that's how much flooding we might get. But how does that how people are vulnerable in terms of population growth, um, you know, occupancy of cities, you know, the number of people affected, how to what extent they can maybe adapt to that um, and bringing together all the evidence on these sort of issues. So that's just one example, but obviously there's also heat and mortality um, and very and number of different aspects. So it's really going down to the actual impacts that people will experience on the ground. And I'd like to explore that a little bit in a minute, if I can, with you, Chris, because obviously that comes into resilience and changes. But can I just ask, this is probably a rather stupid question, but can I ask, why are we getting more flash floods? I mean, why are we actually having these, these extreme flash flooding weather incidents that we've seen here in the UK just this summer, actually very recently? Um, why is that happening? Is that because we've not got anywhere for that water to go? Or is that because there's just more of that flooding happening? And if so, why is it happening? Okay, so yeah, you're right. We've had a lot of these events recently. So we had the flooding in London in July. People may remember where, um, you know, there was tube stations flooding. There was two hospitals closed. I mean, these are um, very um, damaging events and cause a lot of of, of uh, difficulty for people. But also, you know, um, you know, people can actually lose their lives in these flash flooding events. They're very, very serious. Um, there are a number of reasons why um, we might be seeing more of these events, but one of the key ones is, is obviously climate change. So I guess the key physical driver of this, if you like, is as, as the planet warms, the atmosphere can hold more moisture. Um, so about 7% more moisture per kel Kelvin or per degrees degree warming. So every time you warm the atmosphere by a degree, we can hold 7% more moisture. So that means that there's more moisture around for these sort of rainfall systems. And we do expect the intensity of rain. So when it does rain, how heavy it is to really increase as a consequence of that. And we are actually seeing that indeed in, in both the observation records to a degree, but and in the modeling models that we've we've run, these very high resolution models that we run in our team. So we, we do expect this increase in the intensity of rain, and that can be directly manifested then in terms of these sort of flash flooding events. You're right in raising it that it's not just all about changes rainfall patterns. Actually, flooding is very much a consequence of other aspects of the catchment. So, you know, if you have flood management practices in place, that will um, indeed impact the extent to which we see flooding. And it's quite often difficult to disentangle sometimes the kind of climate, underlying climate changes from changes in human practice and therefore what we see in terms of flooding. But um, the event that we saw in London is very much the type of event that we might expect to occur much more frequently in the future. So I think it's fair to say there's more to come. But that is that specific event itself was not necessarily linked to climate change. It's just very much illustrative of what we, what we might expect to see. And that throws a lot of our kind of 
responses to that into a state of oh, not panic but certainly we need to reassess those don't we Chris because because part of this is about developing the right kind of resilience so we can mitigate from these 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 extreme weather events that we may not be able to prevent or have much impact on because of the rate of climate change. Yeah I think that's right and yeah at the answer you ask here what does what does my research sort of group do here at the University of Strathclyde yeah one of the one of the, the very precise things to relate to what Lizzie was just saying there around um, pluvial flooding, surface water uh, flooding, or flash floods is 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 the catchment management side of things. It is um, there's a, a lot of focus on net, using nature, so nature-based solutions a lot more. Uh, so so that's that's a process whereby we're really trying to wind the clock back a little bit, which is um, we've. A lot of our catchments are very heavily managed. Uh, a lot of our watercourses are um, have been adapted and changed over over time for our benefit. You, typically, you know, for, for irrigation, for drinking water, uh, for uh, draining areas, so we can build on them. And of course, now we're facing a situation where we perhaps need to use that space um, more in a natural way. So, so nature can. Um, deal with some of the the let's say higher rainfall that we're perhaps starting to see. So so we're, we're trying to reintegrate um, a lot of the so natural processes, nature based um, solutions into our catchment management. And and then if you can relate that to it, then the urban scale, which is well, a lot of our cities and towns, a lot of our urban conurbations are in floodplains. They're built next to to watercourses. Understandably, they've been there for, for centuries. Um, but we, we have a, a, a real habit of, uh, of hard paving over a lot of uh, our land, um, largely because we want to put roads in there, we want to build houses, we want to uh, create car parks and buildings and so on. Um, but of course, with that, then means the water has, has limited places to go. We, we, we've, we've changed our, our catchment. So there's there's the backdrop and the changing climate around us, and then there's well, how, how do we deal with it? So, um, yeah, very much I think the research that we try to do with is is putting those two pieces together. And conversely, weirdly enough, we saw pictures over the summer. Though you're talking about catchments, and I suppose you guess you're talking about things like reservoirs, of reservoirs actually running dry, and and you know where we so so we so we so we've got these extreme weather events with lots and lots of rain. <laughs> You know, in, and they happened through the summer. They happened as recently as, you know, sort of end of September, October, in some cases, lots of water. And yet we had situations where we had near droughts in terms of some of the reservoirs. So so how do we how do we manage that, Chris? How do we balance those two things? It's, it's, a, it's a really good question really, and a really significant challenge because um, a, lot, a lot of the climate model output uh, does suggest, at least in some places, the overall amount of rainfall may not change that much, or rather, the models themselves. There's what we call noise within the the models here. That the signal, the the climate change signal, is perhaps can be quite hard to to detect because modelling rainfall is a very complicated process. But within there, there is that suggestion that whilst we may see the same or a, a roughly equivalent amount of rainfall as we have done historically in the future, it might arrive differently. And when I say that, it's then as, as you describe in there, we, we may have longer drier periods, so our reservoirs might might become more depleted, and then when the rain does come, it's heavier and more intense and more likely to cause flooding. And I think 
take the the London flood events that, that Lizzie was just referring to, that which happened to, during the summer. Um, that came on the back of a fairly dry period, um, and then thunderstorms, heavy rainfall, and then uh, uh, leading to flash flooding. So, how do we deal with that? That's a water management question. That's that that's an issue of if you look at water as a whole. Do we need to be more flexible about how we store water, how we release water? Um, do we need more, more reservoirs? Uh, do we um, just utilize our water more efficiently? Again, it's, it's a, it's a comp complex picture and a complex answer, but that's very much in, in the water management space. This episode of Planet Pod is supported by leading international law firm, Evershed Sutherland. And, and Lizzie, when you do your modelling, what, what, what is it that you're looking at? And then how does that translate to, you I mean, you've talked about being able to get much more data, but how does it actually work? You know, for sort of, <laughs> sorry, it's a rather stupid layperson's question, but I'm kind of intrigued that you're doing this incredibly intense, you know, very small scale mapping and modelling, which has given you really rich data. But, but, but what does it actually do? Okay, so yeah, at the Met Office, we're running these, what, what you typically you'd use for weather forecasting. So people may be familiar of the weather forecast they see on the television, sort of the very detailed um, images that look quite like a radar map, actually. It's sometimes hard to determine what's the model and what's reality. But um, so we're using these models um, that are, have been used um, traditionally for weather forecasting now for the first time for climate change. So this is very, very expensive and we've only been able to do it recently because of supercomputer powers increasing enough to allow us to do so. And it's important we do this because these really detailed models, they have a, a, a grid box, if you like, that's a kilometre by a kilometre. So that, that might sound quite large, but if you compare it to your additional climate model, which has a grid box of 100 kilometres by 100 kilometres, you can see how we've really zoomed in. So we're really using a model that can zoom in now. And that's important because it can capture um, convection. So convection is a key process behind pretty much all our weather extremes that we have. Um, it's, it's just the rising motions of air within the atmosphere that government put updrafts and then they come down as downdrafts. And essentially that's what drives a lot of the very heavy rainfall we get in summer. So thunderstorms and convective storms. And these, these detailed models that we can now run allow us to capture those storms with much greater credibility and allow us to sort of look then at how changes in rainfall on an hour-by-hour -hour basis might be in the future. And that's really important if we're interested in flooding. Um, it's interested, important for local changes over cities. So we can now see cities with so much more detail than we could with traditional climate models. So that's kind of where this new information is coming um, for us to allow us to kind of feed in directly into the sort of impacts modeling that people are doing. So um, Chris, is, Chris now works in this area. So we, we can use these new um, projections straight into a model which then looks at, say, for example, how are urban drainage systems going to cope in the future? You know, urban drainage systems are designed based on historical rainfall rates. They are not got the capacities to cope with the new increases that we're seeing. Um, so to give you an example, you know, if, if 30 millimetres an hour is the source of rainfall event that would trigger a flash flood warning, and those sort of events are likely to be double in terms of frequency um, in the future if we follow a high emission scenario. So that 
big increase in the frequency can then be fed through into models um, to look at urban flooding or other aspect, other impacts. And the detail of these models now is such that that can go straight through. There can be straight feeds for the rainfall information from the climate model into the impacts model, which then allows us to provide you know, risk-based analysis for the sort of things that people will feel on the ground like flooding. Um, I guess a really important point, though, I'd like to make is that these are these changes that and we've been talking about aren't inevitable. You know, they, these are based on um, um, often we in, the, in the, the work that we do, we use a relatively high emissions greenhouse gas scenario. So that is one with where we carry on emitting greenhouse gases at, a, at you know, the current rates with um, little mitigation. We do that so that we can really understand what the underlying changes are. Um, but it's important to realise that those changes aren't inevitable. And obviously, if we follow a different emissions pathway, then some of these changes, or at least the worst impacts would be avoided. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that that's really uh, the key message of everything that we're all saying, Excuse me. that actually we need to take action now, don't we, to, to make sure that we don't have to put in these extreme mitigation factors, because if we change our behaviours now and we reduce our emissions globally and we bring the, the you know, the, the, the heating under control, climate warming under control, we may not need to have some of these mitigating factors. But I should imagine we still need to take action around some of these things, don't we? I mean, we do need to look at the infrastructure. And, and Chris, this plays into some planning issues too, doesn't it? About, you know, if we use the data that Liz has been talking about to properly plan our towns and our cities and our you know the infrastructure that supports our, our our built environment then we could offset some of the impacts immediately uh, yeah I, I think that that's right I think um, our, our, our planning whether it's water management planning whether it's land zone planning um, all is and, and of course we'll continue to have to take this sort of information in, into account. I think you to pick up actually on one of Liz's points there just just a minute ago, which is yeah, the, I suppose the impact based modelling. Um, again, taking say water management as as, as a good example, um, we all tend to work within our own sort of let's say silos or disciplines. Perhaps we're used to perhaps dealing with one thing or another. So you might be a flood engineer, for example. So your your business, your what you have to do is is deal with. The, the risk posed by floods, but you might not be so interested perhaps in drought or, or, or so the dry side of water, as it were. But typically, we, we, we don't often put those things together. And yet, I think there, there are a couple of things here. Well, one is, is we need to be starting to think about these things in a lot more of a, uh, a joined up way, uh, realizing that if uh, you know, our, our climate is changing, it already is changing. And we can't necessarily think about things as, well, we know historically what has happened, so therefore that's going to be in the future plus or minus a bit. There are other manifestations of our changing climate, and the, so the, the impacts might actually be different irrespective of which scenario we may, we may be on. And it might be that we have to deal with a bit more dry and then a bit more wet. Well, how do you factor that into an impact-based model or risk-based model? when you perhaps only typically would, would only want to understand one or, or the other. So th there are a lot of compounding sort of factors and sequencing issues in, in, in there. And, and the other thing that I'll probably just add to that, that point a minute ago, which is, this is absolutely right, you know, that we're not locked into our, our future. Our choices globally, that is our choices and the choices of our governments will of course have a significant impact on where we go in, in, in the future and therefore what happens to, to extreme events. We've already seen, and you only even have to look at this summer, 
not just London, you look globally at some of the events that we have seen in the last last year and the last few years, some of these events are quite extraordinary and uh, would not have been possible without climate change. And if we're already seeing these changes now with roughly you know, a degree or so of warming from uh, from pre-industrial times, uh, there's without being too alarmist, but yeah, there's there's every, there's there's every suggestion that of course this is going to continue. Lizzie, what's the future for our weather patterns? So I think um, one of the key things is that the climate children will experience when they grow up will be very different to the climate that we experience now. So we're talking about warmer, wetter winters, hotter, drier summers, but also changes in the patterns of extremes. So in particular, for example, exceeding 40 degrees C. Now we we have exceed we had 38.7 degrees C recorded in Cambridge a, a little while back, and people may remember that. And, pe- and so the question is then, will we ever, you know, when will we exceed 40 degrees C in the UK? And, and the ch- chance of that is currently very low. But, you know, by 2100, exceeding 40 degrees C could happen every three to four years. So that's a huge change. And heat waves like we saw in 2018, we could come, you know, every other year by 2050. So these are big changes just in the short span of, of our, our human generation. And we expect the character of rainfall to change. So we're talking about um, more rainfall coming in intense events, but potentially longer intervals in between. So we could have concurrently, you know, more drying effect in summer, but heavier rainfall when it comes. So impacts both on drought and flooding. Um, You know, so something, you know, exceeding um, 30 millimetres an hour, which is the sort of rainfall threshold that we would often relate to a flash flood event. That could be twice as likely in the future if we follow a high emission scenario. So these are big changes um, in just a a short span of of a human generation. Mm. And and it's very difficult for us. I mean, we we are all, well, globally, allegedly, countries are committed to reducing to keep below, you know, two degrees and ideally at 1.5. But but the climate isn't, you know, it doesn't just turn on and off like a switch, does it? So so even if we put in place all of our, our, our mitigation and all of our commitments now, um, to, to keep to keep the, the level of warming down that are we going to be living with some of the things that we're seeing now for for generations because you, we can't undo some of the, the the warming to date so presumably some of these extreme climate events are are the pattern from now onwards even if we manage to keep emissions low is that right or am I just being unnecessarily gloomy about that so I, I can I can answer that so I, I mean so when we emit carbon dioxide into the air it it stays around for about 300 years. So it's around for many generations. So every time we emit carbon dioxide, we need to be thinking about that. So that means absolutely that we're already, you know, feeling the effects of what emissions have happened in the past. Um, Chris is right that the UK climate is already changing. So we can see that in the observational record. So, I mean, for example, um, you know, 10 of the warmest years on record happened since 2002. That's that's a pretty stark um, statistic. And five of the 10 wettest years of record have happened since 2000. So there are changes in the observational record just for the UK. So we're not just talking about something that's distant from us or something's in the future. It, it's definitely evident now. I mean, I think in terms of extremes, it's more difficult. So, I mean, extremes are nothing new. They have happened in the past. And by definition, they are, rel- they are rare things that happen. Um, but there is changing pattern 
that's already emerging again because of emissions that we have put into the atmosphere already. Um, so, you know, we're seeing more te high temperature extremes. Some of, you know, some of the hot temperatures we've experienced would not have been possible without human influence. There is a compelling picture of increasing heavy rainfall and some specific events that we've had have again been linked to climate change. So, um, for example, um, a year or so back, February 2020, people may remember that was the wettest February we've had on record since 1860, um, something like that. And that is, you know, that was three times more likely because of climate change. So we are seeing this. Um, I think the other thing I, I, I would say that these changes are going to accelerate through time. So, you know, we, we're starting to see evidence of changes now, but this is only going to get more so, and people are going to see this more and more on the ground over the coming years and decades. Okay, there are $64 million question. What can we do about it? Chris, what can we do? What can we do globally, nationally, and locally as in individual citizens? What, 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 what's your action plan? That's an easy question. Um, <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a Monday morning. <laughs> um, um, globally, uh, well, the, the delay. Let, let's take COP twenty six as as a as a as a as a, as a global answer. Um, COP twenty six is of course is, is happening. It's happening here in in my city. It's happening here in, in Glasgow in in a in a few short weeks time. And the IPCC AR six, the, the sixth assessment report. It obviously came out this summer. COP26, of course, was delayed. It should have happened last year. It's now happening this year. There's an opportunity potentially there to really build on or take notice of, at the very least, the information that was contained within the first, these, these AR6, uh, the, the sixth assessment reports. And remember that the, the IPCC reports, they the governments, the world's governments, 195 governments have to sign off on what goes into these IPCC reports. They have to agree the wording. It would be great if we could get a similar level of agreement on the back of COP26, as we have seen. So that's putting the action into the words, perhaps, that we're seeing in, in IPCC in the sixth assessment report. So that's at the big picture. That's at the global uh, global level. And of course, yeah, in, in, in a nutshell, it's we have to reduce our emissions and we have to reduce them much, much quicker than we, than we currently are. And then on the other side of the coin, and this is more, you know, where, where, I suppose, where I work, which is at the same time as we are doing much better at, at, at trying to achieve net zero globally, is we've, of course, got to increase our resilience to our changing climate and, and extreme weather events. As Lizzie rightly says, you know, the extremes happen rarely, but they've always been there. It's just the fact that they're perhaps starting to happen more frequently or with more severity or they're lasting longer. Either way, it's a changing pattern that sits behind these, that, that we are starting to feel the impacts. We don't feel averages. We feel and notice and, and are impacted by extremes. So we have it's a dual action. We have to be building resilience. We have to be adapting to our climate, changing climate at the same time as we are, we are trying to uh, mitigate and reduce the, the, our emissions and, and, and reduce what will happen to, to the climate in the future. What we do at the local level, I think there's the onus and responsibility then is on everyone to do small or big, but their, their, their part, whether that's reducing meat consumption and uh, and therefore the, the emissions that come from, from meat production through to, of course, going to uh, electric cars, using public transport, 
and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that's a, 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 a tiny, tiny bit into what was a very big question. It was a big question and thank you. You tackled it brilliantly. Lizzie, have you got anything to add? And perhaps specifically, could I ask you to think about what, you know, given your your specific area of activity at the Met Office, what individuals perhaps can do in response to some of these, you know, extreme climate events? Yeah, so I guess, okay, so um, climate change obviously is a global thing. It affects us all um, and um, we need to make um, action as a collectively as everybody needs to come together basically to act to to to, to make headway um, I think one thing that is important to say is we're not kind of operating in the dark so um, you know climate models are amazing tools they can tell us about actions before we even take them so we can really use the science um, to inform our actions moving forward and that's something I really hope will come out of the COP26 meeting that the science you know, has come out the IPCC report uh, is really heeded and 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 people um, make actions accordingly. And um, there are actions we can take in, as individuals, though. I think um, climate change can often seem very overwhelming to people. Um, and I think trying to understand what you can do as an individual in, in such a massive problem is, is very difficult. I mean, there are things we can do. And I think it, it, it basically boils down to the simple thing that we all need to minimize our carbon dioxide emissions. Um, you, you know, you need everyone needs to be aware of the carbon that they are using. It, it's so hard not, you know, it's, it's embedded in so many things that we do. So, you know, when we decide about what we're going to eat, not just what we're going to eat, but where it's come from, how it's been transported to us. You know, if you, the, the local produce is obviously a much lower carbon footprint, there's, there's, there's information in that increasingly available to people, but it isn't easy. I mean, think about, you know, how often you travel, where, what form of travel you use. These are all, um, you know, very simple things, perhaps. But if we all, you know, took um, account of carbon in, in kind of our actions on a day to day basis, it would make a massive difference. I mean, personally, I, I've made pledges and I found that a very good way of doing it. So I've actually pledged formally what I'm going to do as, a, as, a, as an individual. And then, you know, once you've made that pledge to yourself, then, and, then that is something that you will not change. And I think that's something that I found um, quite a powerful way of doing it. But, um, you know, the, the, the COP26 is a, is, a, is a really great opportunity and, it, and it's great that's being hosted in the UK. And, and, and the fact that the IPCC report has come out just prior to it, I think, is, 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 is really great because that science is, is, is there now and it's clear. I mean, you know, the messaging in terms of what human influence has done and, and potentially what actions we can take and how the benefits of taking those actions in terms of global warming it will, be, will be there to support the decision making process. Mm. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And I think that it is incredibly important that, that we take individual actions and we do need to think about our individual carbon footprints. And, you know, Jim's pointed out to me that you can check whether your area is likely to be flooded because you can use, you know, the, the government flood flood risk maps and things. But but ultimately, it, we cannot just force all of the responsibility onto individuals, can we? We cannot just shift the burden of, of making, you know, positive climate change actions fall on to us as individuals. We have a role to play, but but we have to call on our governments and we have to call on our legislators to take action, don't we? Because however active we are as citizens, ultimately some of these decisions are made at government level, whether it's approving, you know, 
mass building on areas of you know important biodiversity habitat or whether it's choosing to support and and fund fossil fuel industries we we have to call on government to act don't we I mean, yes, it's obviously, it's this is a massive problem, and it needs a global effort. And it's not, uh, yeah, and it's not only down to individuals, absolutely. And I think that's that's a important role from you know people like myself and Chris, as scientists, to really ensure that the science is communicated clearly, so that um, policy pe- policymakers worldwide can really understand the implications of their actions and therefore make informed decisions. And that's that's really critical. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think the, the fact that the work that you both do means that it is inescapable. Some of these facts are no, no longer optional. We can't have politicians just dipping in and out and saying, oh, when, you know, people say it's absolutely inescapable and irrefutable the, from the evidence of the work that you're both doing. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so calling on governments for action is really important, isn't it? And Chris, you and I will be hosting a series of podcasts for Planet Pod up in, in Glasgow in the coming weeks during COP26. And I'm sure we will be revisiting this question of, of, the, of the balance between individual responsibility and government action and the need for international um, connected collaborative you know coherent government action across all nations yeah that's right i think i think we're going to try and hear everyone's voice actually within this this narrative actually um both from science side the government side but also very much from the the people the the you and i and and everyone else and 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 i think um experiencing a, a, a cop within our country um, will give us a, a really interesting insight as to where we are with the science, where um, as a general public they are with um, understanding, uh, I suppose, the, the risk, but also you know, some of the opportunities that, that are ahead of us uh, and wrap that up in, uh, in, in COP26. I think it's going to be a fascinating couple of weeks here in Glasgow. Yeah, it is. And I'm really looking forward to it. We, we should probably draw this to a close, but thank you both for so clearly setting out some of the challenges, but also bringing, bringing that science to life for us and, and, and doing what we set out in our brief, which is to make, you know, bring climate change onto our doorstep in a way that we could understand. Thank you hugely, Lizzie, for joining us. It's been fantastic to have you as part of the programme. Pleasure. Thank you. And, and thank you, Chris. And as we say, we're looking forward to a whole series of, of shared podcasts together for, for uh, COP26, which happens, as we know, from the beginning of November for two weeks. So um, <clears throat> thank you for, for being part of the podcast today. Uh, thanks very much, Amanda. Um, and look forward to it in a few weeks' time. Yeah. Um, thank you to my producer, Jim, and to Beth, who does our research and pulls the programme together. And thank you too for listening to Planet Pod. You can catch all the episodes, as you know, by subscribing or visiting us on the website. And do keep in touch with us during COP because we have lots of questions and we really want to hear from you. Um, so thank you for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.